Ms. Vito, please answer the question. Does the defense's case hold water? No. The defense is wrong. Are you sure? I'm positive. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. On this episode, we're talking about the Supreme Court's decision in the NCAA versus Alston, which may be the beginning of the end for the NCAA or the end of the beginning, or maybe just the middle. Joining me today to discuss what the opinion means, what it doesn't mean, and what might be next for the NCAA is one of the lead lawyers representing the NCAA in the Alston case, Rakesh Killaroo. We discuss everything you want to know about the Alston case, the inner workings of the Supreme Court, why the case may not mean what you think it means, which of course depends on what you think it means, and more. Here we go. Welcome, Rakesh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be uh, here talking with you. So there's a lot to talk about. We are now three days out of one of the maybe most significant Supreme Court opinions involving the NCAA in the history of the NCAA. And there has been a lot written publicly about this case, most of it from and by the critics of the NCAA, which in fairness, as I think you would concede, is a pretty large contingency at this point. But I I thought it would be important, it is important, to get some analysis and context from someone who can speak from the NCAA's perspective. So here we are. And before we jump into the case and what it means and what it doesn't mean, I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about your role in representing the NCAA in the Alston case and in other litigation. I should just note, uh, this is an amusing aside, I literally got on a plane at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. And so the decision came out at 1015 and the gate closed at 1030. So it was a interesting 15 minutes to try to get that opinion downloaded and then a long flight spent reading it. So um, you, ca- you caused them to issue it that <laughs> I, I, I often believe that it, like a good sports fan and like a superstitious sports fan that my actions somehow play some role in the universe. And so, yes, I do in some ways take responsibility because by getting on the planet probably caused the opinion to come down. <laughs> um, but to answer your question, my firm at Wilkinson Steckloff has been representing the NCAA in a few cases. So we became counsel for the NCAA in Alston shortly before the summary judgment briefing was filed. So Basically, once the factual record had been largely developed and while we were making arguments to the judge about what the consequences of those factual facts are, then we remained counsel through trial. My partner, Beth Wilkinson, was the lead trial lawyer for the NCAA during the 10-day bench trial. And then we've stayed involved in the case since then. The Wilmerhale firm led the appellate strategy past the district court, but we stayed involved in the case to help advise on the strategy. And then we're also counsel in a pair of new antitrust cases. I guess they're not that new. They were filed about a year ago, but relatively new in terms of their progress. Antitrust cases in front of the same judge in the same court uh, filed by the same law firm or one of the law firms that was counsel in Alston. And those cases are called House and Oliver. And those are challenges to the NCA's compensation restrictions as pertains to NIL. 
uh, name, image, and likeness. And we filed motions in those cases seeking that they be dismissed on the theory that the cases are seeking relief and benefits that have essentially been decided and foreclosed by previous cases. But those motions remain outstanding. And obviously, I think that'll be an area where we'll see what happens based on Alston. But I wouldn't be surprised if the case expands or, or changes in some way. And I imagine you wouldn't be surprised if more cases are filed on the the heels of the Austin decision. I hope that doesn't happen, but it wouldn't be a surprise. I think that's yeah. fair to say. Okay. okay. <laughs> I just didn't want you to be a surprise. I wanted to. Be a <laughs> uh, uh, so let's talk. Yeah, you've had a, a, a really interesting career and you were named, I don't remember how many years ago, but the 40 under 40 hot lawyers in sports by Law 360, something like that. So congratulations on that. But you... Before you were at your firm, you were a special assistant to President Obama, an associate counsel in the office of White House counsel. And then you go to the firm. You had, you've also clerked for Justice Kagan. There's a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are sports fans or sports law fans. In any of those experiences, did you hope to or plan to or want to represent the NCAA in antitrust litigation or be involved in sports law, much less one of the biggest sports law cases of our lifetimes? Yeah, I think it's it's very fortunate to be able to participate in this type of litigation on behalf of the NCA. I think it's really fascinating and very important. And a somewhat amusing aside, one of the last things, so I joined the White House Counsel's Office from a law firm that I had been at before, uh, and I had a great experience there. But one of the very last things I did at that law firm was work on a pitch uh, to represent the NCA in Alston. So these cases had been filed and there was a request for proposal that went out and my firm was one of many that put in for the request. We didn't get the job then. Jeff Mishkin at Skadden, who landed the representation then. So I sort of thought the ship has sailed on that. And then lo and behold, I come to Wilkinson Steckloff and about five months into the firm, we come on board in the very same case. So it's funny how life brings you in circles. That is. Okay. So let's talk about the case. Why don't you, because there's a lot, again, been said, been written about this by a lot of really smart people, but not necessarily by a lot of really smart people who have represented the NCAA in the case. So I'd love to hear your perspective um, on what the Supreme Court actually decided. But before we, I think we can get there, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what Judge Wilkin decided at the district court and then what the Ninth Circuit decided and then what the Supreme Court was actually asked to decide. Sure, I think that's actually quite helpful because I don't know if the critics you mentioned are voluminous or just speak very loudly, but I think it's that's obviously fair. fair to say that there's been a lot of commentary on the decision. And I think most of it, as you said, has been somewhat critical of the NCAA. But I do think a fair amount of that commentary misses what this case was about, uh, both what it started uh, started out as, which I think is important, and where it ended, which is also important. So where it started out is as a lawsuit that was filed while another antitrust lawsuit against the NCA was already pending. So there was a case called O'Bannon, which you and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, which was a lawsuit challenging the NCA's compensation rules on the theory that they restricted the amount of money student athletes could receive for their name, image, and likeness. And while that case was pending, this new lawsuit, Alston, and others that were related to it, there were a few other cases that got consolidated in front of Judge Wilkin, were also filed. And at least some of the plaintiffs in those cases pitched this as a case to fundamentally transform college athletics in America. Um, they said they wanted to you know, bring free agency to college sports. They wanted to upend the NCA's model and really wipe out large sections of the NCA's rule book as pertains to compensation. 
I think that's important because you might think based on some of the commentary you have read, uh, not you, but the listeners might think based on some of the commentary that's read, that that's what actually happened in this case. And I think that's really not true. As the case evolved in front of Judge Wilkin, she I think looked at it very closely and scrutinized a pretty extensive evidentiary record and came to some conclusions, some in favor of the NCA and some against the NCA. The parts that were favorable is that she generally did not disturb the prohibition on what the NCA would call pay for play, or I think in the more legal terms or the more legal terminology, compensation for athletic participants. That she continued to believe based on the evidence before her was something that it was permissible for the NCAA to restrict, to preserve the traditions of college sports and to preserve it as a unique offering from professional sports, which has been pretty important under the antitrust laws. And I think it's something that's important to consumers and even to the participants of the sport. So that has largely been off the table in this case for quite some time. Instead, what the case has been about is whether the NCA should be providing or and its member institutions should be required or permitted to provide more benefits that are related to education. So in-kind benefits, I think some of the examples have been given have been things like iPads or musical internships, and then also some amounts of cash related to education, stipends for academic performance or meeting certain academic standards. And that's actually what the case has really been about since I would say a few years ago. And that's very much what the case in front of the Supreme Court was about. And I think the court was pretty clear about they said a lot of things in the opinion. But one thing that they, I think, repeatedly emphasize is that this is a decision that was based on a particular record that was developed in front of the judge, involved a lot of evidence and a lot of analysis of that evidence. And so I think it's important in reading these cases, obviously, there are certain conclusions one can draw from bottom lines and not, but I think the actual analysis and the record of the case is pretty important in terms of describing what actually happened. Yeah, and I'm glad you you spelled that out because I think it is really important to understand what again what the Supreme Court said and didn't say. And is it I think it's fair to characterize it as the district court decision, which has now been affirmed by the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court, and the injunction really was a, a split opinion. Uh, the, the part that went in favor of the NCAA is that the NCAA is permitted under antitrust law to continue to restrict, as you said, the compensation for athletic participation or the benefits that are unrelated to education. And so that would be the pay for play and, and other things not related to education. But they were not allowed to continue to restrict, at least association wide, these benefits related to education. And then there was a difference between in kind versus cash. And so the NCAA, one part of it, the plaintiffs won part of it. The NCAA filed a petition for cert to appeal that ruling against the NCAA, but the plaintiffs opted not to file a petition for cert on the ruling that went against them. So the only issue in front of the court was these education-related benefits, period, not the other cash payments that, as you said, the plaintiffs were seeking initially to just break open the system completely, have it be free market, have people pay whatever they want for the assets. That was very much not in front of the Supreme Court. That's right. You said it better and more concisely than I did. You said that's, and again, I think that's that is important because one of the more vocal critics, and I think it's fair to say, it, it may not be that they are necessarily voluminous, but they are they're vocal and they have platforms. So Sally Jenkins, who has been a consistent critic of the NCAA for years, wrote a cracked old cornerstone has been yanked out from under the NCAA by the Supreme Court. And it's going to lead to the total collapse of that crude shanty house. Just you watch. Soon there will be nothing left under Mark Emmert's feet but a few rotten boards. The NCAA should put a sign out 
this property is condemned. You know, it's that's her job. She's a columnist. She's paid <laughs> to make uh, colorful statements and, and to have people to read it. And But let's talk about why that may not necessarily be the case. She's right that ultimately it, it could be the case. But under the Alston decision, let's talk specifically about what the Supreme Court said in affirming, again, the narrow ruling that was in front of Sure. Look, you lose nine nothing. I don't think you can say, and I wouldn't be someone to say that the, the house is gleaming and in tip top shape. But I certainly think there's more than a fair bit of hyperbole in that and what you read and uh, that in, in a way that does not really correspond to the opinion. Um, I think there's really two really, I would say actually three key points that come out of the Supreme Court's opinion from my view. One relates to the legal standard that applies to the NCA. And one of the big debates in the case and one of the issues on which the NCA sought certiorari was, how do the antitrust laws apply to the NCA? And there was this old decision called Board of Regents issued by the Supreme Court that contained this passage. Probably for decades, uh, people debated. And you know, the NCA was on one side of that and others were on another side of that. And essentially, the passage seemed to recognize that there is a need for national regulation of college sports, there's some need to maintain the tradition of amateurism. And it was, but it was unclear, I think it's fair to say, exactly how far that went. Did that mean that the NCA is subject to the traditional rule of reason, which is the ordinary, I think probably the most common form of antitrust analysis? Or did it mean that the NCA gets a slightly more deferential look and that it gets a little more um, leeway based on the importance of those principles? And on that issue, I think it's fair to say the Supreme Court has come pretty close to answering the question, um, at least as to the compensation restrictions that were an issue in the case. Their answer is the rule of reason of the antitrust laws apply in the same way they apply to others. Now, I don't think that's absolute. The court, even in this opinion, said there may be some restraints that are upheld under what's called a quick look or that more deferential form of review because they're essential to have college sports or organized sports generally. I think they found that these particular restrictions did not fall on that side of the line. So going forward, it still remains somewhat uncertain as to exactly how far or how much deference the NCA will get. I think you couldn't deny that it's less today than it was last Friday, but that's an issue that I think has been resolved. And that's an important one because it has to affect the policymaking going forward. And then um, before you go on to the, to yeah, please. just on, just to follow up on that. So one thing I think it's important for people to know who may not be as familiar with antitrust law is that the what the, the court would call the full-blown rule of reason as opposed to the more abbreviated or, or quick look, is that at least in cases that go to trial and that are decided under the rule of reason, the rule of reason has been incredibly defendant, antitrust defendant friendly. Antitrust defendants win 90 plus percent of rule of reason cases. Now, that may be in part because they settle the ones that they're going to lose, but it's not as if being analyzed or being subject to the rule of reason means that your restrictions are going to be declared illegal. They, they obviously were in this case. But the other point is that this idea that some rules may warrant a quicker look because they're probably legal and they don't need to do a full analysis. And those are maybe rules of the game and the things that you can't have sports without. Although there's maybe some hints of how the court would view non-education related payment, they don't say that non-education related payment is not one of those rules. It, it, it could still be that the Supreme Court says after this case, yeah, it's obvious that the NCAA needs to have these restrictions on compensation for its product to exist. We don't need to do a full analysis under the rule of reason. We do need to do a full analysis or they don't get any deference when it is an education related benefit. 
Is that is that a fair reading? It may be an optimistic reading, but is that fair? That at worst, the NCAA gets the full rule of reason, but there's still an argument that they're entitled to some deference, or maybe put it differently, that restrictions on non-education expenses or, or benefits are still pro-competitive. I think that's exactly right. I think the baseline is, and as the opinion makes clear, the rule of reason. And as you say, under the rule of reason, the plaintiff has to actually meet the burden. They're the ones who have to come forward with the better evidence on a couple of things. First, that the market is being restricted in some way, that there's some harm to competition that's occurring. Then there's this middle step where the defendants have to come forward with evidence. And so they have a burden of proving that this restriction that exists, whatever it is, whether it's a price restriction or some kind of competition restriction, is good for competition, is good for consumers. But even if the defendants meet that showing, the plaintiffs have to come back in. There's a third step. And I know there's debates about exactly how many steps there are, which you and I have had in the past. But at the end, the plaintiffs have to come in and say, we have a better way. And they have to prove that way. As you say, the rule of reason isn't some free pass for plaintiffs. It still imposes pretty substantial restrictions. And I think it's fair to say after this opinion, that's the floor. At minimum, that's the standard that's going to apply to NCA regulation. Okay. And see, there you said that much more concisely than I did. So we're even now. Uh, okay, so, so go on. I, I, I interrupted you before about the other pieces of the opinion. No, it, it, it's important points. So the second point is, as you mentioned, that this case really is about this issue of educational benefits. Um, the Supreme Court didn't take a position one way or another on the non-educational benefits. Judge Wilkin upheld those restrictions. It wouldn't surprise me if future plaintiffs challenge those. I think we've already seen some commentary in the media that those challenges are coming. But I don't think the court's opinion says anything that would suggest that those challenges should be resolved in some different way from the way Judge Wilkin resolved them. And there are some parts of the opinion that make clear that there still needs to be important regulation uh, of the benefits student athletes can receive. I think probably the most salient is at the end of the opinion when Justice Gorsuch is talking about how even in the realm of educational benefits, the NCA is free to and can enforce a no Lamborghini rule. And I think you have some recognition there that there is still this important distinction between college and professional sports, and the NCA needs to be in its best position to police that line. The other thing I'd say, and I know you'll probably have more questions about this later, but I think the other good evidence of that is that Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, which has generated a lot of press and media attention, is what my old boss, Justice Kagan, once called the one justice's one justice view, which is to say it's exactly one person's thoughts about the merits of the case and not one that others joined. And so to the extent he might have suggested that a lot more isn't under question, I think it's actually quite important that the overwhelming majority of the court can sign on to this. So let's talk about that now. We might as well, since you mentioned sure. and, and two parts of it. One is, I think, the behind the scenes, to the extent that you can talk about what happens as a clerk for the Supreme Court and your experience with Justice Kagan and how a concurrence like that for people who just don't really understand. And a lot of people who are NCAA fans didn't even know what a concurring opinion was until the Supreme Court just ruled. So if you can talk about how that plays out in chambers and are there discussions about, right, we, we know that someone's going to be assigned the opinion to write, but then do the justices just get to say, I'd like to write a concurrence or I plan to write a dissent and who gets to look at it? Do they get to comment on it? I just think the behind the scenes look, the inside basement, that's the term I was looking for, on how that might happen given your experience clerking for one of the justices who obviously signed on to the opinion. Not the concurrence, but the, the full opinion. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> no, it, it's a great question. And essentially what happens is after the arguments, so every week, the Supreme Court basically has a bunch of sittings where 
they hear over the course of one or two weeks, somewhere between, you know, five and 10 or 12 arguments, they hear all these cases together. And a couple of times during that week, they get together and they discuss what they're thinking about the cases. And at the end of those discussions, typically there's a vote just to understand where people are, who's in the majority, who's in dissent, so on. And then what happens is that the most senior justice who's in the majority, so in this instance, it seems pretty clear the chief justice, given that it was unanimous opinion, will assign each of the opinions from that sitting. So whether there's five or 10 or 12, I think in this one particular sitting, there were six, he'll assign that opinion to someone. And then that person will be responsible for writing the majority opinion. Now, if there's a dissent, the dissenters will actually go through the same process. So say there's three people who dissent, the senior most justice in the dissent will decide who's going to write it, and that person will go off and they'll prepare their own opinion. And then there's an exchange. The At some point when the opinion's ready, the justice who is in the majority sends it out to the full court, says, here's the opinion, and everyone has a chance to offer some suggestions. They can do something very simple, which is to just say, please join me to your opinion. It's called a join letter, and then they're one of the votes that joins the majority opinion. So that's part of the process. Concurrences play sort of an interesting role in the process. They're not the law. They're a particular set of justices' views about an issue. In this case, one justice's views about the issue. And typically, they involve they can involve discussion of areas that aren't addressed by the majority that this justice feels strongly about or wants to say something about. Sometimes they can explain why the justice is joining the opinion. They'll say, I pretty much agree with the majority. I would view it a little more narrowly, but the bottom line is right. So there's all different kinds of forms they can take. But more often than not, something like this opinion will get circulated after the main opinion comes out. Someone will say, hey, I read the main opinion. I'm joining it, but here's some additional thoughts. And that'll go to everyone. And so everyone will have an opportunity if they want to join that or not. And again, the process is basically the same that someone else can say, I agree with your opinion. Please join me to it. And then another name appears on it. And today it's Wednesday. There were a bunch of other concurring opinions and other cases that a number of other justices joined. I don't know exactly what happened here, but my guess is Justice Kavanaugh sent this out. It ended up being just him who joined this and everyone else went with the majority opinion, but not much more. So how, because a lot of people are, are wondering and, and we, those who practice law and particularly litigation or appellate practice certainly have seen concurring and dissenting opinions get cited in briefs, although they're not binding, they're often persuasive. And so it won't be surprising to see, it would be surprising if the plaintiffs do not cite some of Justice Kavanaugh's language, but is it more meaningful, this is a difficult question to answer, it's actually going to be hard for me to ask, uh, but if it, is it more meaningful that one of the more conservative justices on the court wrote an opinion that, fill in the word, that was fairly scathing towards the NCAA and, and went beyond the specific issue that was presented to the court? Is it more meaningful that happened? Or is it more meaningful that no other justices actually joined the concurring opinion? Or should we not read anything into any of that? It's just the opinion is the opinion, that's it. I think any time a justice of the Supreme Court speaks, you're well advised to take it under consideration because if another case is gonna come up, that's gonna be one of the people who's asking you questions and you need to think about their views. I will say, and I don't mean this in any respect to Justice Kavanaugh, I would say this about any one justice's opinion, you probably are going to be a little more concerned about the analysis going forward if a number of people have joined onto it as opposed to just one. And to be fair, there are some famous one justice opinions that have really shaped the law. There are some on the right of privacy, for example, and things like that, where one justice had a view and they made it clear and decades later that became the law. But typically it's decades later. Usually if it's going to be some kind of immediate change, you'll see it reflected in what a greater group of the justices. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. That's a very helpful. And then 
I think, did you have one other point you wanted to make on the... the yeah, just uh, and very quickly, because I know you probably have other things you want to talk about. The last point is I would just note that even in this area of educational benefits, so this is an area where the NCA is operating under an injunction. The judge actually said you can't restrict educational benefits of certain types and you can't restrict cash educational benefits beyond a certain level. Even in that area where the Supreme Court was affirming the judge's injunction and saying they agreed with her analysis, the court, I think, took great pains to make clear areas in which the NCAA would continue to have some leeway. Now, the way in which that leeway would be exercised is a little unclear. One way would be to go to the judge and say, hey, we want to do X and see what they think. Another might be to pass rules, excuse me, and see if she has a reaction to them. That the specific mechanism is a legal procedural question that will remain a little unclear for the time being. But looking at the opinion in each of the categories where the NCA, where we had raised some concerns about the injunction, the court actually made clear, maybe you're overreading the injunction is actually pretty narrow and there's some leeway for you to regulate here. For one, the court upheld the NCA's ability to prohibit paid internships that aren't offered by schools, which is something that I think the plaintiffs had asked for and the court wasn't willing to allow. In terms of the you know, cash benefits, the cash payments and other benefits, the court was pretty clear that the NCA remains and retains uh, a role in trying to determine what's actually an educational benefit and what might seem to be an impermissible benefit. So again, you come back to the Lamborghini rule, or the no Lamborghini rule, I should say. So I think in all of these circumstances, there's recognition that even on the evidence that was submitted to this court, there's still some basis and some importance to having restrictions to prevent pay for play and preserve amateurism and keep college sports distinct in important ways from professional sports. Yeah. And I think that's the point that's probably been overlooked by most who have read the opinion. And in fairness, myself, it's a pretty lengthy opinion. It's pretty dense and right. there's a lot going on. But the, sort of the headline is the NCAA loses. And then there's the skating concurrence. But even, and it's 9-0, thinking about what the court allowed and what they didn't allow, and again, the, the no Lamborghini rule, if there were no pro-competitive benefit to having restrictions against pay-for-play, why would the NCAA be able to have a no Lamborghini rule? Right? Why, why that, That's a fairly... I think telling point, as you said, that the Supreme Court made that they still have lots of rights to define what education-related benefits are. Now, in part, that's because the non-education benefits weren't in front of the court, and so they were just addressing sure. the injunction. Would you characterize the case? Let's, let's imagine, if we can, that Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence doesn't exist. So it's just the 9-0 opinion striking down the injunction, affirming the injunction, striking down these rules. That's probably not a bad decision for the NCAA, right? I, I think there is certainly people have been criticizing the NCAA because they they just that's what they do is criticize the NCAA. But criticizing the NCAA is saying, yeah, this is not such a groundbreaking opinion. This is just saying that the line is education benefits or benefits not related to education, and and that's what we've been saying. And there's some tweaks around that, but we still have lots of authority around how to define education benefits. So if that if that were it, this wouldn't be so bad. For the NCAA, there is the holding that antitrust law applies to the NCAA like it does to everybody else. There is no deference, that it's not a non-commercial enterprise, so all, all those sort of threshold issues, which I think the NCAA, that would have been a huge win for the NCAA to get, but to lose it, it's not necessarily a catastrophic loss. I know this is, again, hard for you to answer as a outside counsel for the NCAA, but I think a lot of people don't believe that this isn't a catastrophic loss for the NCAA. What do you, what's your response to that sort of, you've gone through some of the, the limits of the holding, 
but as to why it's not as bad as Sally Jenkins and others are, are saying, at least in the short term. I think it's largely, it relates to what you said, Gabe, which is uh, the scope of the opinion and the reach of the opinion. Um, it's easy, as, and I know I was probably guilty of doing this when I was on my flight. You read that thing called the syllabus. It's a couple pages at the beginning, and it just tells you the bottom line. And then Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence cuts all the headlines, so you read that and you skip over what's in the middle. But what I think is in the middle is actually quite important because what's in the middle is the actual scope of the injunction that was issued. Now, to be clear, the NCA did not believe that injunction should be entered and thought that was uh, wrong. And so in that sense, it is different and a disruption from the status quo that we were defending in the litigation. But with that said, it's that versus what the plaintiffs wanted in the litigation, which was this kind of remaking of college sports, was something much closer to what I think the media has suggested happened. And that is not what happened in the district courts as we were trying the case. It's not what happened in the Court of Appeals. And the other two points I'd note just coming out of the opinion are the way the court describes the rule of reason is consistent with what you said earlier about how this is not some kind of free pass for plaintiffs that actually imposes some pretty substantial restraints. And that's particularly notable in the parts of the opinion where Justice Gorsuch talks about how courts need to be modest in tracking their injunctions and how it's not the job of courts to ask plaintiff's lawyers, can you imagine a slightly better world and therefore we will impose it through judicial decree? It's really about whether something is broadly reasonable and defensible. And if it is, then the analysis ends. If it's not, then you get into this discussion of whether there's some alternative that might be out there. I think that's one you know, pretty important point. And then the second is, yes, there are these unresolved questions. And I think going forward, it's fair to say we can expect some litigation over those questions. Obviously, we're facing litigation over them right now in the House case. But a lot of what's sought in that case and maybe other cases are things that I think have been addressed in the O'Bannon decision and to some degree even in the Olson decision, cash unrelated to education. And so I don't know that this new opinion changes the status quo as to those things. And in that sense, we think the arguments will remain and continue to be decided by the courts. So a lot still to be undecided. Maybe the rules of engagement are a little clearer and the, the analysis, but, but not to say the answer to the analysis. So couple of couple other questions and, and one that, that, that gets asked a lot. But given that the plaintiff's initial complaint was so broad and that their the injunction was so narrow, that although the NCAA lost part of the case, you'd say overall it was a win. It's never a win to have your rules be declared illegal under antitrust law, but compared to what it could have been. And yet the plaintiffs did not file a petition for cert to try to get the, the broader relief that they wanted from the Supreme Court. And the NCAA did file the petition for cert to try to get this narrower rule overturned. And hindsight, obviously 2020, but if the NCAA does not file the petition for cert and the plaintiffs do not, then we just have this Ninth Circuit opinion that's consistent with O'Bannon before it. And, and we don't have Sally Jenkins writing. She might be writing about it, anyway, but we don't have her saying yeah, I, 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 I might get that article regardless, but maybe yeah. there'd be a different anchor for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, can you talk maybe a little bit about it? I know you can't necessarily get into to strategy and attorney-client conversations, but about why this was not necessarily just about the terms of the injunction. And of course, you disagreed with the injunction, but why the NCAA just generally decided to file this with the Supreme Court and try to overturn that? 
Yeah. At the end of the day, I think we had a decision from the Ninth Circuit and from the district court that we disagreed with. And some forms of the analysis under the rule of reason and the way the court applied the rule of reason were things that we thought were inappropriate. So obviously there was this bigger question about the level of deference the NCA should receive. But then there were questions about whether the judge had gone through the specific rule of reason analysis in the right way. And those were the arguments we made to the Supreme Court. And obviously, we had hoped they would have accepted some of them. It didn't happen that way, but that's where we find ourselves. But I don't know that the world looks, to your point, that different today than it did a year and a half ago when Alston was decided and when the Ninth Circuit issued its opinion. We have this injunction. It's something that's existed and that we've been aware of and are operating under. But beyond that, I don't know that there's necessarily a lot of immediate consequence from the opinion, though there's certainly a lot of things that we have to think about and, you know, reflect on and factor into the legal analysis going. So what on the note, what is the sort of the current fear, would you say, of the NCAA now that the injunction is permanent and it's been affirmed by the Supreme Court? What's the worst case scenario of what a school or a conference might try to permit that could ultimately harm the NCAA or harm amateurs? Well, I think the arguments we've made in the case are that something that's labeled cash tethered to education, um, it's unclear how different that may look in practice from cash for athletic performance. And that's where I think some of the important authority that the Supreme Court affirmed becomes essential because the ability to make clear what those dividing lines are, to make clear that these benefits really are tethered to education as opposed to athletic performance. I think it's important that the court reaffirm that authority because you could potentially have this blurring of the line between the two based on the fact that money is money. And so it's being offered in, uh, in sort of ways that aren't particularly regulated. It may start to blur that line in a way that you don't necessarily want. So I think that authority that the court affirmed is actually pretty important. And so what does that mean for practically speaking? Because there are athletic directors and general counsels and coaches all over the country saying, so what do we do now? What, what, how do they just practically comply with the injunction? Not what they will do, but what they can do. We know that the conferences can agree to limits, but are we going to see the NCAA put out a new detailed policy on what the education related benefits are and then send it over to Judge Wilkin for her approval or leave it to the conferences? Or, and when does it happen? It's always when, it, when a Supreme Court decision comes down and you say you're enjoined from doing X, does that mean right now or do I have a day? Or do I have, when, how does this play out practically speaking? The opinion came out two days ago. So I think it's really just early to tell us all of that. I think we're all still digesting it. Come on, give us an answer. Coverage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the decision comes, you react to it immediately. But I I tend to think that making policy decisions in a snap is not something that folks like to do or usually leads to good decisions. Yeah, that's fair. And then before I let you go, just in terms of the bigger picture where the NCAA is, as you said, they're, you're representing them in, in two of these NIL-related cases. We've now got the Olson decision. We've got multiple state laws about to take effect on July 1, related to name, image, and likeness. We have Congress taking a look at this. This is a crystal ball through the NCAA's outside counsel perspective. But where do you see, what's next? What, what do you think happens next? Does Congress step in? Does this case end up being much ado about nothing and we mostly get the status quo under antitrust law. If you sort of had to put your your, your NCAA tinted glasses on, where do you see this playing out? I like to keep my glasses pretty clear, even though I have the clients that I represent sort of through those lenses. I think what I can offer is two things. The first is, 
know, we had hoped that this decision would, uh, that Alston would affirm the ability of the NCA to set national rules to, to regulate college sports. And in some ways it does, but in some ways it doesn't. Obviously, it enjoins us from imposing certain rules. And in that sense, I think it does pose some challenges because if it's suspect under the antitrust laws or subject to rule of, even rule of reason inquiry to try to establish those rules, it creates hazard in trying to create those rules because of the possibility of litigation risk. And that's not to say we would win or lose in the litigation, but the fact of the litigation is something you have to deal with. Something that remains in the spotlight that you mentioned and that I know the NCA has been pushing for and believes strongly in is that this is also an area where Congress can act. You know, the antitrust laws are not the Constitution, they're a statute, and they're something that Congress can step in to to make sense of. And as the NCA and others have been telling Congress, and I think there's been a lot of effort put into, national rules are important to preserve college sports, to keep a national recruiting environment, to prevent abuse. And the state laws coming around the corner do threaten that consensus. And so one thing I know the NCA has been committed to is, and this comes from President Emmert and others as well, is to, on the issue of NIL in particular, providing more benefits to student athletes and allowing them to take advantage of these opportunities, but in a way that respects the need for kind of uniform rules of the road. And that's something where, as the court mentioned, and as I think the NCA has been advocating, Congress can play an important role in helping to make clear exactly how these rules should operate. And I would hope in affirming the role of the NCAA in setting those rules, because one thing that I think does often get messed up or at least misconstrued a little bit in the news is this idea of the NCA as a monolithic organization. It's a membership organization. It represents schools and the various interests of those schools. And I think most people would agree, or at least I hope people would agree, that it actually is a good thing that in setting national rules, you consider the interests of those various perspectives. Just as when Congress passes laws, it considers the views of the 50 states and the various representatives who live in those states. So I think the hope is that Congress will take some action. I know there's been a lot of there's a lot been a lot of push on that front. And this is the litigation. We'll see where it goes. But as I as you said at the beginning, as I said a little bit too, I don't know that this opinion it's not a win by any means. But I don't know that it disrupts the the world so much that it's going to cause you know massive changes to the way college sports operate. Yeah, and it's a great point you make because part of what the Supreme Court said is the NCAA is not entitled to special treatment under the antitrust law. But Congress may decide to give it. And so we'll see how special Congress decides college sports is and, and what that means in terms of any legislation. Last point. Are you still in touch with Justice Kagan? Did you communicate with her? She has always been a great mentor and a friend. She stays in close contact with her clerks. And I couldn't say enough great things about the role she's played in my career and all the support she's given me over the years. Did you send her a text after the decision <laughs> with, with an emoji? Is there a, I can't believe you did this Justice Kagan emoji? Uh, I know better than to, than to call her out uh, on opinion, particularly one that ruled against my client. So yeah, okay. I expect I would hear for a, a, a fair amount about the merits of our position from her as well. So no, I did not. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. I really appreciate it. And as I started the conversation, I, I really wanted to have the NCAA perspective on this case. This was, it's obviously a really important case. And I think it's also really important as many people paint the NCAA or any large organization as a, the evil empire to put the human face on it. And you do a tremendous job. And it's part, part of the reason I wanted you to come on the podcast and when I was on a panel with you of just stating the case of the NCAA in a civil, intellectual way, but really highlighting that although people may think the NCAA is evil, they actually, like a lot of these organizations, do have good intentions and are trying to put out a product that consumers like and that 
athletes like. And I'll now get slammed for saying anything positive about the NCAA. But thank you for for lending your insight and your expertise and good luck on the continuing litigation and everything else that you're, you've been working on and be well. Thanks. Thanks very much, Gabe. And to your point, there are a lot of people who are working really hard to try to do the right thing here. And yeah, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Thanks very much. Thank you all for listening. And thanks as always to my loyal sponsor, RitVest. Now more than ever, RitVest. See you all next time between the lines. This is your opinion. It's a fact.